Amen. Well, thank you, worship team, and good morning, church. So glad to see you this morning. Hey, if you have your Bibles, open up to Genesis chapter 28. Genesis 28 is where we're going to be this morning. Man, what an awesome weekend we have had. And uh, I just want to say, before we dig into the sermon this morning, I just want to say thank you to every volunteer. We had an army of volunteers that helped out uh, Friday night. And as you heard, we had well over a thousand people uh, on our campus, and it was just fantastic. But I especially want us to uh, just just thank, uh, through a round of applause, um, our kids director, Jessica Shepard, Kyle Lane, and Ronnie Tittle. Yeah. And you have no idea how much work goes on behind the scenes, uh, so I'm just so grateful for our staff here at Kernan and just the hard work that they invested uh, into our community. This was a gift to our community, and man, just really something to celebrate. So we're so thankful for each of you uh, who helped out this weekend. And hey, I survived a hayride with Michael Myers Friday night. So uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I've lived to tell about it. That was pretty interesting. He was in character the whole time, maybe a little too well, actually. Um, but anyway, so it was a good time had by all, and I, I know my kids have endless candy forever now. So all right, well, hey, Genesis 28 is where we're going to be. Uh, we're continuing our series called A Family for the World. And so what we're looking at is the story of God's people originating in the book of Genesis when he calls out a man named Abraham to be part of his special people, to create, to create a witness in this world through that family. And so we've been looking at the story scene by scene and different points throughout Genesis. And so we're picking up today uh, where we left off in Genesis 28, we're going to be in verses 10 through 22. Uh, but before we dig into that, I want us to pray and ask the Lord to bless his word uh, this morning. So would you uh, pray with me? Lord Jesus, we're so grateful that we get to gather today with the people of God so that we can worship you, the one true God. Lord, we're thankful that you have come down to us. We're thankful that we have salvation in your name, as we just sang. Jesus, that is true. Lord, in a world desperately searching for what is true, for real truth, Lord, we proclaim today that you are the truth. So would you speak into our hearts now your truth and lead us in the path we should go as we look at this story of Jacob and the family of God today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Well, most of you know, uh, I was out last Sunday and our family, we are moving. Well, I should say now, we have moved. Uh, so last night was our first night uh, in our new house. And so we're really excited and we're, we're really happy. Uh, though, uh, we have a lot to do and everything we own is scattered around the house in random boxes. I woke up this morning and realized that my jeans and my shoes were still in my car. Um, <laughs> so, you know, thankfully I'm here. Uh, but it was... Uh, it was kind of a crazy day yesterday. Uh, we had some friends come over and help us move. But you know, uh, as, we're, as we're moving into the house yesterday, we're, we're carrying, of course, all these large pieces of furniture. And we had just had uh, some of the walls uh, painted and so uh, a few days ago. And so uh, the paint is, is there and it's new and it looks great. And of course, you know, as my friends are helping us move the furniture in, of course, you know, I'm kind of directing and saying, all right, uh, don't hit the walls. Make sure you don't hit the walls. We just painted the walls. Don't hit the walls. And then guess who was the first person to ding the walls? 
Yeah, it was me. Uh, so apparently I can't even tote one piece of my baby's crib up a flight of stairs without dinging the wall. So there we are now with a few dings uh, on the wall because of me. Uh, but you know, I think it's funny that, that now I have to look at these marks. Of course, you know, we can repair them. Thankfully, we have some paint left over that matches, so we're good. But I think the same thing kind of happens in our lives. You know, we, we try to be real careful and we try to plan out our lives to go a certain way and, and we think we're in control and doing really well and then what do we do? We mess up. We do something just totally silly, totally wrong perhaps, just sinful. We do something and we make a mess and that mess, what does it do? It leaves a mark. The mess we make of our lives leaves a mark in our lives as a way that reminds us of the problems we have caused ourselves. You know, as we've been looking at this story and this family in Genesis, we see a lot of marks. We see a lot of mistakes. We see a lot of scuff marks. We see a lot of mess they've made of themselves, but perhaps none more than Jacob. As we saw last week, Jacob and his brother Esau really got into it. But you could say it this way, Jacob is a great deceiver. His name means he deceives. And he really lived up to that name as we saw the last uh, two weeks ago when, we, when I preached through that story. What did we see? We saw Esau sell his birthright, which in the ancient world was so important. That means that you're the, you're the head of the family, you have the control, you have the decision-making power, you attain more of an inheritance, you will be more wealthy than your siblings. If you're the firstborn in the ancient world, that is so important. And so Esau was the firstborn of the twins, Jacob and Esau. He came out of the womb first, and so he naturally had that right, but he sold that right to his brother Jacob. And then Jacob deceived his father Isaac to just confirm that he was going to be the one to get that birthright, and it worked. So he tricked his father. But now his brother Esau wants to kill Jacob for stealing his birthright. So Jacob's parents, Rebekah and Isaac, they send Jacob to a place called Padan Aram uh, to find a wife and to, to basically hide, to hide from his brother who wants to kill him. So Jacob goes and lives with his uncle, in Padan, Padan Aram, uh, and, and he's on the run, right? I mean, Jacob is basically a fugitive on the run for his life because his brother wants to kill him. He has no place. Essentially, Jacob has made a mess of his life. So how is he going to respond? What is he going to do? Well, I want us to pick up in Genesis 28, verses 10 through 22, where we see Jacob on the run. Verse 10 of Genesis 28. So I want us to, to walk through the story, and then we're going to make some points uh, at the end. Beginning in verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. So, this is the lowest point of Jacob's entire life. This is rock bottom for him, and quite literally, right? Because he's using a rock as a pillow. But do you see how Jacob has made a mess of his life? 
He has brought all of this on himself. He is the one who desperately wanted that firstborn birthright status. He wanted that inheritance. He essentially steals it from his brother. And then he deceives his father. His brother wants to kill him now. He has ruined his family. His family is in disarray and broken because of his selfishness, because of his actions. Jacob could have had and should have had everything he ever wanted, everything he could ever dream of as the firstborn inheritance there with his family. But because of his deception and his trickery, his family is torn apart. His brother wants to kill him. He's running for his life. And now he's homeless, essentially, as he travels to live with his uncle, which, by the way, was 550 miles away. And in the ancient world, that is a long journey, right? I mean, that's not, that's, that's not a nonstop flight that takes a couple of hours. That is a long journey. So here Jacob is now, alone, running for his life. And even the context of this scene really illustrates the season of life that he's in, right? The sun has set on him. Darkness is coming over his life. He has no comfortable place to sleep. He's alone. The only thing he has with him is his regrets, his doubts, and fear of the uncertainty of his future. But God is not finished with Jacob. Verse 12. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Man, it's funny the things we dream sometimes, right? You guys ever had weird dreams? Like just what in the world did that mean? Well, this is at, on the outset a weird dream, but it's more than a dream. As we're about to see, this is a revelation from God himself. But I want to point out here that the Hebrew word used here for ladder uh, can also mean a stairway. So what this is probably referring to is something in the ancient world called a ziggurat. A ziggurat? A ziggurat. Which was kind of a rectangular tower, so four-sided tower that, that came up kind of like a pyramid, if you will, and, and, it, and it had a, normally some kind of temple at the top. And in the ancient world, uh, many pagans would believe that that's where you would worship the gods, and that was your access to heaven. So they would build these towers. In fact, you probably know from Genesis 11, the story of the Tower of Babel, that's essentially what they were building. They were building this stairway to heaven, this staircase that would allow them to get to God. And so Jacob is seeing one of these structures in his dream, but he's not climbing up the stairs. These angels from heaven are coming down and going back up, coming down and going back up. So he sees in this dream, heaven is somehow connected to earth. Let's keep reading. Then God says this, verse 13, And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, 
And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Man, those words sound familiar, right? If you've been tracking with us through Genesis as we've been preaching through this book, those words sound really familiar because it's very similar to the words God initially told uh, Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, right? He said, I'm going to bless your family. I'm doing something that you guys don't even, you can't even dream of. You guys can't even see how amazing what I'm doing through your family and how this is going to play out and how your family is going to turn into a nation and that nation is going to turn into a people, the people of God who are going to be a witness to the whole entire world. So God is affirming here the initial plan he started with Abraham. He's now affirming that Jacob is the one who the promise of God is with even though he's made a mess of his life, even though he has brought himself to the lowest point of his life, the promise God made to Abraham, it continues with Jacob, and God is affirming that here. But this also shows Jacob that his life is not really about him, is it? He has lived so selfishly up until this point. He was only concerned about his attainment of wealth and prosperity and fame and power by stealing that firstborn status from his brother. But God is showing him that people from all over, that's why he says the north, the south, the east, the west, people, Jacob, more than you can imagine, this is not about you. You are part of something so much bigger and greater than you could ever think of, possibly dream of, but hey, in this dream, that's what I'm telling you. So get over yourself. I mean, essentially, that's what Jacob needs to hear. Hey, Jacob, you don't have time to sit and soak in your misery and beat yourself up over your past or try to take things into your own hands. You're part of something so special, Jacob. You're part of a family for the entire world. Look what he says in verse 15. God continues to speak in this dream to Jacob. He says, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Man, aren't you glad that God keeps his promises? And you see how kind and gracious God is here? Jacob has ruined his life. He's ruined his family relationships. His brother left I mean, everyone is estranged now, right? His brother is not living where his parents are. His mom and dad are just upset about this. I don't know what Jacob has really been pursuing his life that has led him to this point. But remember, right, he really desperately wanted that that status, that wealth, that power, that approval of his father. So I don't know what Jacob's been pursuing, but you know what verse 15 tells us? That God is pursuing Jacob. Verse 16, then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. Man, I I love that because Jacob all of a sudden is just aware that God's presence is with him. God's presence is everywhere, right? God is getting Jacob's attention. That's what's happening. And you see that in his language here. Verse 17, and he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. 
So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured, and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Right? So Jacob, he reacts to, to the dream or the revelation he just received, and, and his response is, is not too bad. Right? He realizes something very special has happened in this place where he spent the night by himself. And so he names it Bethel, and that word means house of God. He thinks that this is the house of God, this place. There's something special about that place. And so he knows that God has met him. He knows that God has assured him of the plan for his future. But has Jacob really given his heart in full, complete surrender to the Lord? Look what he says here in the remainder of our story, verse 20 through 22. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God, and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house, and of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Now, we're going to talk about this later, but notice here, Jacob says, if, if God does this, and if God does that, and if he gives me these things that I want and I need, then the Lord shall be my God. Then I will give some of my money to him in a tithe, a tenth of it. Then I might build an altar and worship him truly. So make note, he's coming to God with conditions. So Jacob, here's a question for you, buddy. What, what are you doing? Like, what, are, what are you doing with your life? I mean, you've made a lot of mistakes. You've been through a lot. You've scratched up the walls of your life. You have markers all around you reminding you of your mistakes. You're in the darkest, lowest point. But the question, Jacob, that you need to answer is this. What is really, really captivating your heart? What's really going on inside? There's three things I want us to see from this story that I think we can apply to our own lives today. The first one is this. God's grace offers a path forward. God's grace offers a path forward. Again, Jacob is at the lowest point of his life, right? But remember, it's his own fault. I mean, it's his own sin that has brought him here. So what now? Well, even though Jacob is not pursuing God, God is pursuing Jacob. Look again at verse 15. God tells Jacob, he says, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. What I have promised you. Now, I want to be very clear, and I want you to listen to this. There must be repentance of our sin, right? So what I mean is when we do make a mess of our lives, when we do do something very foolish that gets us into a pickle, that gets us into a very difficult circumstance relationally with our family members, maybe at work, maybe, just, maybe it's just between us and God, 
and we don't even feel connected to God anymore. I want us to be very clear, there must be repentance. And that word is used in the scriptures a lot. And what that word means is to turn away from our sin, right? So repentance entails a turning away from something and a turning to something. It's a change of direction. So it's turning away from the sin that captivates our hearts, the idols in this world that rule us, that we are slaves to and, and obedient to. It means turning away from those things as our little saviors and turning to Christ to be our only fulfillment of peace and love and joy and salvation. So we must take sin seriously because it separates us from our creator. It separates us from God. And though Jacob may not be taking it seriously yet in this story, we must. Because grace is not cheap. Grace offers a path forward, but it is costly. Jesus had to die for our sin. So we must turn away in disgust of anything that Jesus had to die for. How can we devote ourselves to the idols of our hearts when Jesus had to shed his own blood for them? We should be disgusted by our own sin. And I just don't sense that here with Jacob. I don't sense that he's disgusted with his sin. I sense that he is disgusted with his circumstances. But God calls his people to a life of faithfulness, and that is not going to happen without continual repentance of our sin. And then we experience God's forgiveness. And God shows us a path forward that he has for us. So in light of that truth, maybe you've made a mess of your life. Maybe you're on the verge of making a mess of your life. And you know that if someone found out what's really going on in your heart or in your actions or in your behavior, that it probably would be a mess. Maybe like Jacob, you are running from something. And the reality is, I think more than anything else, most of us are just running from ourselves. We are running from the problems that are harbored in our hearts. We are running from the just sinful mindset that we carry with us and the worship of other things other than God. And so we're, we're running in these ways. And if you turn away, though, from these things, from these sins, and fully trust Jesus to show you the way forward, he will. You see, God was not finished with Jacob. And he is being so kind and so gracious to show Jacob a path forward in his life. Jacob, your life is not over. Though you have made a huge mistake, though you have made a mess of things and all your family members essentially hate you now, all these things you have done, yes, you are at the lowest point of your life, but your life is not over, Jacob. I still have a plan for you. I still have a wonderful, beautiful life ahead for you. But Jacob, you must repent. You must turn to me. God's not finished with Jacob. And if you identify with Jacob, I want you to know that God's not finished with you. Philippians 1 verse 6 tells us, Paul writes, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying to believers in Jesus Christ, what he started, the salvation that he started and gave you, He's going to complete. In other words, 
He is going to hold you near and dear to him always and forever. No matter how far you run, no matter how hard you try to rebel against God, God, if you are a true, if you are a true follower of Jesus, he is going to keep you and pull you back. What a beautiful promise for when we are in our darkest moments of life, just like Jacob, God promises to keep his children to finish what he started in us. Now, like I said, Jacob needs to truly turn away from his sin. He doesn't need to just feel guilty or shameful or bad because of his circumstances. He needs to be remorseful over the pain that he's caused his family and that he's caused God himself. But is he really fully trusting God? Well, see, his words here, his words here at the end of this account leads us to believe that he's not fully trusting the Lord yet. And that brings us to our second point of the story. Number two, our obedience to God must be unconditional. Our obedience to God must be unconditional. Look at what Jacob said again in verses 20 through 22. He says, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then... Then the Lord shall be my God. In other words, Jacob's saying, hey God, um, you know, I'm, I'm hungry. need some new clothes. I'm out here by myself. Really want to go back to my dad's house so I can get that inheritance. You know, remember that? I really want that, right? So basically I need money, food, and clothing, and shelter. I need all these things. And so, hey God, if you can just give me all that stuff, that'd be great. And then I tell you what, I'll worship you. I will make you my God I will, I will devote my life to you if you give me all these things on this checklist of needs and wants and desires. But do you see that language he's using? Maybe there's some, maybe there's some of that desire still lingering, right, in his heart for that, for that power and that approval of his dad. Maybe, that, maybe he thinks God's plan is good, but really it's just a way for him to get those things. And we can't know for sure exactly what Jacob's thinking, but what we do know is Jacob's commitment here seems to be half-hearted because it comes with conditions, which is completely opposite as to how his grandfather Abraham obeyed when God asked him to sacrifice Isaac. Remember that story a few weeks ago? Abraham didn't question God. Abraham didn't give God a list of demands. Abraham fully surrendered his will and obeyed the Lord's will. But here, Jacob is giving God a list of demands. He is giving him terms and conditions, right? It's like when you download an app or something and, you know, what pops up on your screen? Do you agree to these terms and conditions? I mean, we never read that, do we? Like, surely nobody actually reads the 10,000 pages it's like you could be giving away your life, right? You have no idea. Like, I think I just accidentally gave Apple my car. Um, <laughs> but we just hit agree, don't we? But that's like us giving God all these terms and conditions. It's like, hey, God, uh, here's a really long list of things that you need to agree to before this all works out. And so Jacob here is not fully surrendering his heart to the Lord. He's fully surrendering his heart to his idols, he is still kind of playing games with God. But here, he is thinking about himself. 
his heart still needs to be transformed fully. His commitment here, it's a good step in the right direction, I guess, right? I mean, he acknowledges God's presence. He seems worshipful on the outside, but he's not really fully trusting. And, and I think this verse serves as a warning to the people of God today, to the church. I think it's easy to come to church, to go to some kind of church camp, to go to a concert or whatever, a worship service. I think it's easy to, to have some kind of religious experience and feel really high about that, right? You may leave here today just thinking, man, that was awesome, right? And, and, and you feel emotionally just empowered and all that. And that's, that's fine and good, except if it's just a game that we keep continually playing in our hearts and we're not fully surrendering our whole lives to Christ, what good is that? What good is it unless our aim is just to impress other people and to make them think that we've got our lives nice and neatly packaged and well put together? I'm a good Christian person. I go to church. I do all these good things in the community. What's our real goal here? What's our real motivation? I mean, it's easy to get caught up in the appearance of godliness when in reality the practice of godliness is lacking in our lives. You see, one reason it's so important that our obedience to God be unconditional is because of the worldwide mission God is achieving in and through his people. We, we can't miss the, the emphasis of that in this story, right? You see, God wanted Jacob to realize that his plans were so much bigger than Jacob's little life. Jacob, your life is so small. Your, your desires and your wants, they're so important to you, but to the rest of the world, they mean nothing, Jacob. And so if you could just kind of get over yourself, you could realize how amazing your life really is as part of such a greater story. God's plan from the beginning of time was to fill the earth with his glory. And that's exactly why he chose Abraham's family to be the launching pad for that plan to happen, for it to come to fruition. And that's the core purpose of our lives as God's people today. If you feel like Jacob and you've made a mess of your life, or perhaps you just feel like your life is very insignificant in some way, I want you to know that as God's child, and just think about that, as a person who deserves not salvation, as a person who deserves not eternity with God, God has reached down and given you the gift of eternal life. And he's adopted you into his family. And so now as God's child with an inheritance awaiting you, your life is absolutely significant. How could it not be? Because your life is not about you. And that's the best thing any of us could ever hear. It's not what we're trained to hear as we grow up in this world. We're taught from a very young age that life is all about you and what you want to be and what you think you can do and all these things. And, and there's some truth in that and some goodness in that. But overall, our life is not about us. And it's only when we come to that realization, it's only when we accept that truth that our life can be lived truly to the fullest. That's the abundant life God is talking about. We must fully surrender ourselves to him in unconditional obedience. It's only when we get over ourselves that we can serve the Lord unconditionally. As long as we 
are the number one priority in our own hearts and minds and serving ourselves and our selfishness, if that's our king, then we cannot fully obey unconditionally. There will, all be, there will always be terms and conditions we present to God and to others, the ones we love the most on this earth. Because there are going to be roadblocks, there are going to be problems along the way, we must fully surrender our hearts in unconditional obedience to the Lord so that we can freely love Him, freely serve Him, and love and serve others. Because what the world needs to see, and here's what the world needs to see, is not half-hearted, half-committed Christians. That's not what the world needs right now. We don't, they don't need to see Christians just putting on a show once a week and dressing up and coming to church and acting like, oh, my life is so good. Look at me. Look at how great I am. That's not what the world needs. The world needs to see humble, repentant, just earnest worship. That's what people need to see in the lives of Christians. They need to see that there is a God who has a bigger story that we're all living for, who loves us, who's worth giving everything up for. Unconditional obedience. What the world needs to see is Christ in us. And that brings us to our third and final point that we see in this story. Jesus Jesus is what the world needs to see because he is the bridge between heaven and earth. Jesus is the bridge, or you could say it this way, Jesus is the stairway. Jesus is the staircase between heaven and earth. You know, one of humanity's greatest quests has been to answer the question, is God knowable? Has our creator God communicated to his people. Can we know God? Not just is there a God, but if there is, and we affirm that, is he knowable? Can we know him? Does he communicate to us? You see, here's how Christianity is different from every other major world religion. We're, on Wednesday nights, I'm teaching a class uh, here at the church. On Wednesday nights at 6.30, we've been going through world religions and, and Christian denominations and talking about different beliefs and things like that. And, and let, me tell you what, let me tell you what distinguishes the gospel of Jesus from every other message of every other religion. Every other religion is teaching essentially the same thing, that there is this great staircase. There's this great staircase that we have to climb. And if we can get to the top, if we can climb to the top, we will have access to the heavens or to some kind of afterlife or some kind of relationship with a God of your choosing. If we can just do enough, and we, if, if we can be good enough, if we can follow the rules, if we can follow whatever commands there may be and whatever the scriptures are of whatever religion, if we can just impress God enough and work our way up the staircase, maybe, just maybe at the end, when you take your final breath, you'll have some kind of wonderful afterlife. But what Jesus came and told his people and told this world was this. God has come down the staircase to us. Jesus Christ himself is the stairway. He is the staircase. Jesus has come down to earth. We cannot 
be good enough. We cannot climb the ladder. We cannot climb the staircase. Jesus, in John 1.51, he said to Nathaniel, and, and Thad read this earlier for us in our worship. It was our scripture reading today. John 1.51, Jesus speaks to Nathaniel, and what does he say? He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And that's a reference to Jesus himself. Do you catch that? Jesus is referencing what? Jacob's dream. Thousands of years later, Jesus is referencing the very dream that he gave Jacob because he's telling Nathaniel that now I'm the staircase. I'm the bridge, Jesus says, between heaven and earth. Yes, God is knowable. Yes, God communicates to this earth because you know what? God wants to live on this earth. Man, how awesome is that? How awesome that Jesus came to earth because God wants to make earth his dwelling place. He wants to reside not just in a temple, not in a building made by hands. He wants to reside in the building that he made, our hearts. God wants to live with his people. He wants to live inside his people. What a beautiful God we serve, that we would rebel against him, yet in his loving grace and faithfulness, he shows us a path forward. And as we live and surrender our lives to him, his presence is with us and in us because he is the bridge between heaven and earth. He wants his presence and his glory to be displayed in and through us, but not for the sake of us, for the sake of salvation for this world. You see, the family that God called in Genesis with Abraham? You know who that family is today? It's us. The church of Jesus Christ. The New Testament refers to us as his bride. It also refers to us as his body. It refers to us as his building. It refers to us as his family. We are the family of God for the entire world. It's not about us. It's not about our story and, and how much we've made a mess of our lives. I mean, maybe you're here today and the truth is you completely identify with Jacob because you have made a mess of some kind. And there's a wide spectrum of how big or small that may be. For everybody in here, it's going to be different, but there are marks. There are marks on the wall of your heart where you can see where you have dinged the furniture up against the wall. You can see that you have made a mistake. You can see, and it, there's these triggers, and it constantly reminds you of the mistakes you've made and the sin and the guilt and the shame that you're carrying with you. But I want you to know today that there's only one thing that can cover those marks, and it's the blood of Jesus Christ. the blood of Jesus Christ can wipe away every spot and every mistake and every mess you've made. And just like he did to Jacob in his goodness and his grace, he has a path for you moving forward. And the great, beautiful, ironic truth is that path for you is not even about you. 
if you can fully surrender truly your heart to the Lord and not live for you, but live for him in full unconditional surrender, then others, your family members, your coworkers, your neighbors, they will see not, not so much you and, and the appearance that you've created about yourself. They will see Christ in you. They will see Jesus through you. And they will know. They will know through your heart that Jesus is the only stairway and staircase to heaven. That he has come down to us. If you're here today, maybe you've been playing just religious games for a long time. Maybe you've been relying on occasional church attendance to be your salvation. Maybe you've been relying on just the good perception that you carry about yourself. Maybe you've just been relying on good things and religious things, but the truth is those good religious things are really just a mask. And they're covering up the marks that are truly on your heart. And I just want to tell you today, if that's you, give your life in full surrender to the Lord today. He will forgive you. Please come up and find me after the service. I would love to talk with you about salvation, about baptism, and what it means to be a member of the family of God, a family for the world. So please don't hesitate to find me after the service, and we, I would love to talk with you more about that. I'll be out in the cafe right outside these doors to my left in the lobby. So come find me and talk if you need to. The beautiful truth is, no matter what mess we've made, there is grace, there is forgiveness. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I'm so thankful that we don't have to try to climb the ladder. Lord, we can't. Lord Jesus, we cannot impress you with how good we've been. We can't impress you with how hard we try to climb to reach you. Lord, the only thing that's truly impressive in this world is your perfect life that you lived for us. Jesus, the life that we should have lived, you lived for us in our place. Jesus, the death that we should have died for our own sin, you died for us in our place as our substitute. And Lord, as we sang earlier, you rose from the grave to give us new life. And Lord, I pray that that new, resurrecting, powerful life would be real in every heart in this place. That there would be no question or no doubt, but only full surrender, Jesus, to you, our King, our Maker, our Creator, the God of all things. Lord, help us. We are weak. We are weak and we cannot do this alone. Lord Jesus, give us your Holy Spirit and help us. Draw us to yourself. If we've made a mess, if there's marks on our heart, would you give us your grace? Lord, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let that truth ring in our hearts and be real in our minds. Show us the path forward. Thank you, Lord, for coming down to us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.